day 14. Please turn to that page, 878. 878, Lord's Day 14. Then we'll open God's Word, first to Matthew 1, reading that, a portion of that once again, and then turning to Matthew 13, 54 to 58. In Lord's Day 14, the question is asked, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, that the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself, through the working of the Holy Spirit, from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. The next question, how does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, he covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Now please open your Bibles to Matthew 1. Reading once again, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name, Jesus. Now please flip over to Matthew 13. Chapter 13 and verse 54. Thirteen fifty-four. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. 
Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open there to Matthew 13. Suppose you were born and raised in some remote, isolated jungle tribe. One day, a helicopter lands in a clearing next to your village. Through an interpreter, the pilot gives you an opportunity to climb aboard, and he offers you a trip to North America. First, he teaches you some English. The helicopter then takes you to an airport where you get on a plane. The plane takes you to Toronto Airport, and you land during the third week of December. A guide takes you through the city. You see the local shopping malls. And as you're taken through the city at night, you see beautiful colored lights on homes, businesses, stores, and government buildings. Suppose you had never heard the biblical story of Christmas. What message would you get from what you saw? In the shopping mall, you observed a fat man in a red suit and white beard taking children on his knee while their parents took pictures and looked on with smiling faces. In one of the stores, you looked at greeting cards which had pictures of the same jolly fat man on a sleigh pulled by a reindeer. You saw other cards with pictures of talking snowmen. Others had children on toboggans playing in the snow. Still others had pictures of of winged creatures lighting up the sky over a group of shepherds or a glowing mother looking into a glowing manger. As you observed the shoppers, you saw people with boxes wrapped up with colored paper. As you listened to some of the conversations, you heard people talking about gifts, food, family celebrations, and some of the conversations had to do with drunken parties. As you take it all in, what would you conclude about the celebration in North America called Christmas? Ubiquitous Santas, reindeer, Frosty the snowman, generous spending, self-indulgence, eating, drinking, and beautiful lights. Now, brothers and sisters, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that all these things are necessarily sinful. And that Christians are are wayward if they have lights on their homes or gifts under their Christmas trees, not at all. But as Christians, we ought to be sensitive to the shift in North America to secularize Christmas. The spiritual truths of Christmas have been largely replaced by crass consumerism. It has become the favorite holiday for committed hedonists. The sad reality is that for many people, the Christ of Christmas is forgotten altogether. I once read the terrible story of a wealthy family who had a christening party for their new baby. They invited all their friends and relatives to their large home to celebrate the birth of their son. A half hour or so into the party, when the mother went to get the baby, she made a tragic discovery. The large bed where she had left the baby asleep was piled high with the coats of the guests. The precious baby was lying dead underneath the mound suffocated by the coats. The sad story illustrates what many people have done to Christmas. 
The one whose birth we celebrate is lost under a big pile of stuff. The question we ought to consider is, what does our Lord think of all this? Is he honored in our celebrations? Are we giving glory to the one whose birth we celebrate? Do we love and treasure him above all earthly treasure? From the moment Jesus came into this world, he was largely ignored. There was no room for him at the inn. The place where he was laid undoubtedly reeked of animal smells. He received no royal welcome, no enthusiastic celebrations among the Jewish leaders, no services of praise in the synagogues of Israel. He was a nobody, just another baby. When he was born, the nation of Israel slept. Today, the North American tendency to secularize Christmas and disregard Jesus is consistent with the way he has always been treated. He was ignored by the vast majority of people on that first Christmas, and ever since, he has been largely ignored, opposed, criticized, and even hated by people in every generation. For 2,000 years, many have challenged his authority, denied his deity, cursed his name, and rejected his claims. And so this morning, I want us to focus on the words of Matthew 13, verses 54 to 58, and consider with you the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Who is this person whose birth we celebrate? Whose first bed was a feeding trough? For the people of Nazareth, Jesus was a familiar face, point number one, a fascinating teacher, point number two, but a false messiah, point number three. A familiar face. For some time, Jesus had been teaching and ministering in and around Capernaum. But in our text, verse 54, we are told that he came to his hometown of Nazareth. You'll recall that Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth when the angel Gabriel came to them on separate visits to announce that they would be the parents of the Messiah. Luke 1 verse 26 says, The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Although Joseph and Mary were living in Nazareth, Jesus was not born there because Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem to participate in the Roman census. Even though Mary, his wife, was at an advanced stage of pregnancy, she traveled along with him to register in Bethlehem. While they were in Bethlehem, Mary went into labor and Jesus was born there, fulfilling the prophecies that the Messiah would be born in the city of David. Shortly after his birth, Jesus was taken by his parents to Egypt to protect him from the sword of Herod. We don't know how long the family stayed in Egypt, probably about a year. After Herod was dead, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph and told him that he could safely return to the land of Israel. So Joseph brought Mary and Jesus back home, and they settled in Nazareth where Joseph resumed his work as a village carpenter. From that time on, Nazareth was Jesus' hometown. 
It wasn't much of a town, really. Now there's not even once mentioned in the Old Testament. It was one of those towns that was rarely talked about. It was a nothing place. The words of Nathaniel in John 1:46 express common sentiment. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was not a center of education or learning. It was not a, a busy center of trade. It was a small, insignificant community. It was here that the Son of God lived for almost 30 years. He played in its streets, carried water from its well, and interacted with other children. As he became older, he worked in his father's shop. And ever since he was just a young boy, he worshipped with his parents in the synagogue of Nazareth. The people watched him grow up. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The people of Nazareth could see that he was a godly child, and they could see that he was a godly young man. They could tell that he always honored his parents. He never talked back, disobeyed, resisted their authority, or ignored their requests. As he grew, the people of Nazareth must have been impressed with his character. He was kind loved his neighbor as himself, did not display unrighteous anger, overcame evil with good, was patient and considerate with others. He was the most humble young man in the community. He never cheated his father's customers, never gave them poor quality workmanship, was always a man of his word, was upright and fair in everything he did. As a young man, he knew the Scriptures better than anyone else. He had exceptional insight into Moses and the prophets. Every week he kept the Sabbath and delighted in the Lord as no one else in Nazareth. He was also a young man who persevered in prayer. Nazareth had never, never had a man of such character and integrity in its midst. You would think that every father in Nazareth would be pleased to have Jesus marry one of his daughters, delighted to have him as a son-in-law. You would have expected a measure of pride that Nazareth had in their hometown boy. When he was 30 years old, Jesus left Nazareth and was baptized by John in the River Jordan. Since then, he had become rather famous. News spread far and wide about his remarkable preaching and his miracle-working power. Jesus of Nazareth was known everywhere. You would have expected the people of Nazareth to receive him gladly. He was putting Nazareth on the map. He was giving Nazareth a name and recognition. You would expect Nazareth to honor him. But that was not the case. Even though he had lived a blameless life in their midst for almost 30 years, and even though they had no reason to criticize him, the people of Nazareth were cold. Cold as ice. His godly character and life did not move them whatsoever. In almost 30 years, they had never heard him say a mean word and never saw him do something that was contrary to God's law. He lived a consistently blameless life. Now think about this for a moment. If I were to go to your hometown and talk to your parents 
siblings, old friends, old neighbors, school teachers, your principal, your old babysitters, what kind of stories could I write about any one of you? Some of you knew your school principal rather well because you spent a fair amount of time on his bench. Some of you had to pay for windows that you broke in school. Some of you got into fights on the playground. Some of you had regular detentions for talking in class. Some of you wrote out sizable portions of the dictionary. Some of you older folks have memories of the strap. If I talked to some of your childhood friends, I suspect I would hear all sorts of interesting things about your past, some of which would be a, a great embarrassment to you. I'm certain that if you went to my hometown and interviewed people, it would not be difficult to uncover dirt from my past. If you interviewed my high school teachers, you would wonder how I ever ended up in the ministry. You might discover some unexpected things about me. And isn't that true about all of us? People in your hometown, your neighbors and friends, know all of your weaknesses, failings, pranks, tempers, foolishness, disobedience, and recklessness. Especially those of us who lived in a small town and had the same neighbors for 25 years, they know our failings all too well. But brothers and sisters, if you could go to Nazareth 2,000 years ago and interview Jesus' parents, neighbors, friends, siblings, teachers, or the customers of his father's workshop, if people answered honestly, you would not be able to dig up any dirt whatsoever. Nothing, nothing. Yet the people of Jesus' hometown did not receive him as God's Messiah. He was just a familiar face. Nevertheless, they had to agree that he was a fascinating teacher, point number two. A fascinating teacher. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 54. When he had come to his own country, his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It was obvious to those who heard him that he possessed profound wisdom and authority beyond anything that they had ever seen or heard. He had the ability to speak profoundly yet very clearly on any subject. He had an incredible breadth of knowledge. It was evident that he spoke by the power of God. But despite the clear demonstration of wisdom, the people of Nazareth would not receive and obey his preaching. They were offended by him. Look down to verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. Now, brothers and sisters, consider for a moment the questions that we find in verses 54 and 55. The first question is at the end of verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? That's question number one. 
Then in verse 55 we read, is this not the carpenter's son? That's question number two. Now if they rightly answered question number two, they would also have the answer to question number one. Or if they rightly answered question number one, they would have the answer to question number two. Listen again to question number two. Perhaps you're wondering why in the world I selected such a text so close to Christmas. What does this passage have to do with the birth of Jesus? Question number two, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Children, what's the answer to that question? And why would the answer to that question provide the answer to question number one? Is this not the carpenter's son? What's the answer? Yes and no. Yes, Jesus was the son of Joseph in the legal sense, but was he really the carpenter's son? No, brothers and sisters, the first chapter of Matthew tells us that before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. When Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant, he was minded to put her away secretly. He decided not to go through with the marriage. Joseph assumed that Mary had relations with another man. He knew that he was not the father. Therefore, there had to be another man. But instead of shaming her publicly, he decided to put her away secretly. But while Joseph thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Congregation Jesus' birth was the result of a miraculous conception whereby the Virgin Mary conceived a baby in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit without a human father. Joseph was not the father of the child in Mary's womb. Another man was not the father. The father of the baby was the Holy Spirit. As you know, the doctrine of the virgin birth has often been challenged by unbelievers and dismissed by liberal theologians. But Jesus' birth from a virgin is clearly taught in both Matthew 1 and Luke 1, and it's very important that we accept it. To reject the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity. And if we deny that Jesus is God, we have denied the very essence of Christianity. This is one of the great truths that we celebrate at Christmas. That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary a true human nature. That he was born of a woman demonstrates that he was indeed human and became like one of us, became one of us. That he was born apart from human fatherhood points to his divine nature as the Son of God. For Jesus to be God, he had to be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, a man, and Mary, a woman, could not produce God. 
God could not be born into this world by natural human processes. He could not be God apart from being conceived by God. So congregation, if the people of Nazareth answered question number two, they would also have the answer to question number one. Is this not the carpenter's son? No, it is not. This man has no earthly father. Joseph is the legal father, but not his biological father. He's not the carpenter's son. He is God's son. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That is why he has such wisdom. That is why he is able to perform such mighty works. The people of Nazareth could have and should have known the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. The people of Nazareth could have put two and two together and concluded that Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Why did he live such a righteous, blameless life in their midst for 30 years? Why was he able to preach with such power, wisdom, and authority? Why was he able to perform such mighty deeds? Because Jesus was not merely the carpenter's son. He was God's son. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He was born of a woman so that he might be human. But he was conceived by the Holy Spirit so that his human nature was protected from all sin. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he did not inherit Adam's sin and corruption. Therefore, our Lord Jesus was fully qualified to be the Savior of sinners and to be the mediator between God and man. Because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the people of Nazareth should have acknowledged him as their Messiah, perfect God and perfect man. They could have also concluded that Jesus was the true seed of David. Both Mary and Joseph were of the house of David. God had promised to David a great and glorious son, one who would sit upon his throne forever. As the people observed his wisdom and mighty works, they could have concluded that he was the great son of David, the true king of Israel. Is this not the carpenter's son? No. No. He is the son of David and the son of God. Congregation, the synagogue of Nazareth, could have been filled with songs of praise, worship, and thanksgiving. Glory to God. This is our Messiah. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God has sent the Messiah to rescue us from our sin. Oh, Lord, we bless your holy name. The virgin has conceived and born a son, and we stand in awe of his wisdom and mighty works. Glory to God. Glory to God. 
But brothers and sisters, instead of songs of praise, there was only unbelief. Jesus was unwanted, unappreciated, and unloved. When he was born, there was no place for him except in an animal trough. There was no national acclaim and adoration. Thirty-some years later, there was still no place for him and still no national acclaim and adoration. Although he was a fascinating teacher, the people of Nazareth regarded him as a false messiah. Point number three, a false messiah. We know who you are. We know your family, your parents, your brothers, your sisters. We know that you've never gone to a rabbinical school. We know that you're merely a tradesman. Sometimes we say familiarity breeds contempt, right? Among mere humans, that is somewhat understandable because the more you get to know someone, the more you see their flaws, foibles, and failures. But with Jesus, that was not the case. The more they got to know him, the more they saw his perfect character. And yet familiarity caused them to disregard the obvious power of God. They dismissed him as a false messiah. Isn't there an important lesson here for us to bear in mind? Most of us hear the Christmas story every year again. And most of us, perhaps all of us here, we hear the word read and proclaimed every week. We hear the gospel over and over and over and over again. We need to be very careful that familiarity does not make us careless with the things of God. You may hear the story of the virgin birth and the incarnation. You may hear of the angels rejoicing over the fields of Bethlehem. You may hear the shepherds finding Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And even though you know all the stories so well, you might fail to receive the message for yourself. The wonderful Savior was in Nazareth, but they did not receive him. And the wonderful Savior speaks to you every time you hear the exposition of Scripture. I ask you, are there some here who also dismiss Him? Does the gospel change your life and fill you with adoration and praise? Does the message of Jesus' birth, life, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and the promise of his return on the clouds of heaven, do they fill you with thanksgiving? Do you say, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or do you hear the story of redemption with a careless spirit? You hear the gospel, but fail to yield your life to the authority of Christ. Do you have the light before you, but choose to walk in darkness? There is no such thing as being neutral or undecided about Jesus. You either hear his word and submit to his lordship, or you dismiss him. 
An English preacher of the 1800s commenting on this passage said, There is nothing in all this that needs surprise us. The same thing is going on around us every day in our own land. The Holy Scriptures, the preaching of the gospel, the public ordinances of religion, the abundant means of grace that England enjoys are continually undervalued by English people. They are so accustomed to them that they do not know their privileges. An awful truth that in religion, it is an awful truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. It is an awful truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. In verse 57, Jesus said to the people of Nazareth, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Jesus compared himself to a prophet, and truly he was a prophet. The great prophet spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, which we turned to a few weeks ago. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. Him you shall hear, speaking of Christ. The people of Nazareth did not hear him. They could not honor one who had been raised in their midst. Congregation, Jesus wasn't rejected by just a few in Nazareth. Neither was it a 50-50 split. There was not a division in the synagogue with some believing and others rejecting him. The impression that we get is that the vast majority dismissed him. What an insight into human nature. John 3.19 says, The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The people of Nazareth chose darkness over light. Despite his obvious perfection and his astonishing preaching, the people would not trust him. Could that also be said of any of you here this morning? Is anyone here choosing darkness over light? How important it is to trust Him with all your heart, to hear His Word, to confess your need of Him for salvation. Without Him, there is no joy, no life, no hope, and no heaven. Brothers and sisters, in verse 58, have a look there. In verse 58, we read that Jesus did not do many mighty works, miracles there because of their unbelief. The coldness of the people was to their detriment. They could have been richly blessed by Jesus' miracle-working power. They could have profited immensely. They could have received visible verifications of Jesus' Messiahship. The same supernatural power that He revealed elsewhere could have been unleashed in Nazareth. But because of their unbelief, Jesus would not do the miracles that He had done in other towns. 
Miracles were confirmations that Jesus was the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Since these people said he's not the Messiah, he's the carpenter, the son of Joseph and Mary. In light of their rejection and their lack of faith, it was morally and spiritually inconsistent to do mighty works there. He would not perform miracles where there was hard and willful unbelief. It was a barrier to divine blessing, and it dammed up the flow of His goodness. These people had so many advantages. The one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit lived among them and preached the Word to them, but they would not hear His message. Congregation, doesn't the same thing happen today as well? Some people sing, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Yet they fail to yield to him as Savior, Lord, and Master. I wonder, I wonder if there'll be people reading the Christmas story today or tomorrow who don't bother to open their Bibles for most of the year. Ordinarily, it stands on a shelf as a decorative showpiece. The story of Jesus' birth has sentimental value on Christmas Day. Sentimental value and nothing more. I suspect there are people who go to church during the Christmas season, but for the rest of the year, it's not a priority. It's just not important. Perhaps there is even someone here this morning who has warm feelings about Christmas. You have warm feelings about the Christmas season. You love the carols. You love the story of Matthew 1 and Luke 2. You love to read about the angels, the shepherds, and the baby in the manger. I once heard someone on talk radio say that while he was not a Christian, he thought that the Christmas story was one of the best stories ever written. Maybe you're like that. You enjoy Christmas, but your daily life shows little evidence of genuine love for Christ and obedience to His Word. Could there be someone here this morning who knows many Bible stories, yet your heart is cold as a snowman to the things of Christ? Is there anyone here who will not acknowledge your need of Him? Is your unbelief a barrier to divine blessing? As far as we know, Jesus made no more visits to Nazareth. The Gospels do not record any. They dismissed their Savior and He departed from them. Although they had received great light, most of them were left in darkness. Some may have come to faith later on and were saved, we don't know. But the text before us challenges all who read it to examine their own heart. Are you hearing Him? Are you receiving Him? Or is your heart hard and cold to the Savior? Congregation, may the Spirit of God work powerfully in our midst so that each one of us may be as the shepherds who glorified and praised God for all the things that they had heard and seen. May we all be as the many angels over the fields of Bethlehem who praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
Through faith of the Lord Jesus, your life can be filled with joy that no one can take from you. Joy that rises above the difficult, harsh, sorrowful circumstances of life. Joy that will continue for eternity. Why? Because Jesus is more than the carpenter's son. He is the son of David. He is the son of God. Worship him. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your son. We are reminded from these verses this morning again how hard our hearts can be We ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon each and every one of us, softening our hearts, changing us, reorienting our priorities. May we all yield to the sovereign Christ. May we acknowledge him, not merely as the carpenter's son, but as the son of David, the son of God. Lord, we're reminded again that familiarity breeds contempt and we pray that those of us who are so familiar with these stories would not become complacent and apathetic, that we would not reject the Savior, the Messiah. May our Christmas celebrations be more than just sentimental occasions. But may they be rooted in the one who came into this world to suffer and die for hell-deserving sinners. And so, Lord, work these truths into our hearts in a very deep and profound way. And may each one of us respond with songs of joy. Receive these praises as we conclude this service. In the name of our Lord Jesus, true God, true man, we pray. Amen.